If you have your Bible with you, uh, we'll be looking at the Old Testament book of Haggai. If you would turn there, Haggai is the third from the last book in the Old Testament. Haggai was what was considered a post-exilic prophet. Post-exilic means post-exile, after the exile, after he spoke into the time period, after the children of Israel had come back from their exile or captivity in Babylon. Now you've got to remember, these Jews were taken captive 70 years before. And almost all of the Jewish people had been taken into Babylon, except for a few rejects. That's, that's how the Babylonians looked at them. The old, the weak, the too young. They left them there and they intermarried with some foreigners and became known as Samaritans. But the rest of them were taken into Babylon and Babylon was quite different from their life in Israel. Remember, these Jews had only ever known the temple and the sacrifices their own special diet, even their own special clothing. But now they were inundated in all things Babylonian, a people that didn't know or care about their God, Yahweh, or their way of life. The psalmist expresses well something of their heart in Psalm 137, and it says this, Alongside Babylon's rivers, we sat on the banks, We cried and cried, remembering the good old days in Zion. Now, Zion was the hill upon which Jerusalem and the temple sat. So he's talking about the good old days in Zion. Alongside the quaking aspens, we stacked our unplayed harps. That's where our captors demanded songs, sarcastic and mocking. Sing us a happy Zion song. But their response is, How could we ever sing God's song in this wasteland? If I ever forget you, Jerusalem, let my fingers wither and fall off like leaves. Let my tongue swell and turn black if I fail to remember you, if I fail, old dear Jerusalem, to honor you as my greatest. See, these were a people that were familiar with, that were accustomed to the very presence of the living God. They were used to the fact that God dwelt among them. That that was what made them different from everybody else upon the earth. Over the years, because they no no longer had a temple that they could go to, they developed a system called synagogues. And synagogue just literally means a place to bring people together. That's what it means. Sin, sin, agog. To study the word together. So they had these synagogues where they would come and they would read the scriptures that they had at that time. They would tell stories about the good old days. You know what it's like when you get together with your grandma and your grandpa and they talk about the good old days. That's what they would do. They would talk about the time when God took from the seed of one man, Abraham, and he formed the great nation called Israel. They told stories about how the Egyptians enslaved Israel for 430 years, but God, through a man by the name of Moses, came and delivered them from it. They listened to the stories that we even like in Sunday school. You know, you remember how you heard the story the first time about how little David took a stone in a sling and sling it, slung it, whatever the word is, at that giant and killed this giant Goliath? I mean, how tall was Goliath? He had to be what? eight feet tall or something like that. They loved those kinds of stories and how David's son 
Solomon built this amazing edifice, this temple to bring glory and honor to God. They loved the stories of the judges that came and delivered people about how God vested Himself in this thing called the Ark of the Covenant. And when the Ark was brought in, the enemies were defeated. They would sit around the fires at night, much like we might if we were out camping, except for now, they lived here. And they would sit around whispering stories about the good old days, wondering if just maybe one day God might come back and visit His people and that they would have the last laugh over these Babylonians. And they reminded one another again and again, remember, we're God's people. Even though we live here in a foreign land, and we feel like we are outnumbered and outclassed, we are still the people of God. And I, I think probably that's much like what many churches feel like today. Oh, we're not meeting in synagogues, and we're not meeting around fires, but we remind one another of the good old days. You know when God came in revival? God poured out His Spirit, and it was powerful, and everybody was undone. We talk about the good old days when Gene was healed of the tumor. We talk about the good old days when uh, Kate walked in the doors and she got dramatically, I mean, she got saved, saved. We talk about those good old days. And then at the end, we remind one another, wait a minute, keep in mind, we're Christians. We're not like the other people in the world. We're Christians and we need to keep that in mind and we need to re remember to live like that. Much like what these Jewish people felt like. But in the story that we're reading in Haggai, God does the unexpected. God comes down. But He doesn't come down like they expected. He doesn't come down in a blaze of glory and destroy all the enemies. He doesn't come down and manifest Himself as a pillar of fire as He did in the wilderness. He comes down into the heart of a heathen king by the name of Darius. And for whatever reason, we, we don't even really know, Darius, who was not a believer in God, somehow felt compelled to send the Jewish people, who are called the remnant, those that are left over, he was going to send them back to their homeland where they could actually begin to practice their own religion again in their own homeland. Can you imagine, just a little bit, the excitement they must have felt? Here they had been captive for 70 years. And this heathen king is not only going to release them to go back to their homeland, he's actually going to fund their trip back. How many of you would like a vacation where somebody else pays for it? That's the kind of thing this is like for them. They're going home and he's paying for everything and he's even sending his army ahead of them to protect them on the way. Can you imagine how excited they were as they began to think about the fact that they were going home. But remember, at this point in time, when they were taken captive into Babylon, they had spread across the whole of the Babylonian Empire. I've got a map for you just to look at it for a moment. This is the Babylonian Empire. It includes Syria, Iran, Iraq, Turkey, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, and of course Israel. That's how far and wide the Babylonian Empire. So it took a while for the word to spread to everybody and for them to gather so that they could make the trip back home. You can bet that those good old day stories amped up a whole lot during that time while they were waiting to finally go. 
They began to talk about it. And remember now, these people had been, been in captivity for 70 years, which means that many of the adults had never even seen Jerusalem or the temple. All they had were some of the old-timers' stories who would come along and tell them about this amazing thing, the stories that were told. They knew that they were going home to the city on a hill, to the place of God's presence, the place that bore his name. And they were so excited about it. Psalm 126 tells you a little bit about it. It says this, It seemed like a dream, too good to be true, when God returned Zion's exiles. We laughed, we sang, we couldn't believe our good fortune. We were the talk of the nations. God was wonderful to them. God was wonderful to us. We are one happy people. And they began their journey all the way back to Jerusalem from wherever they had been scattered in the Babylonian Empire. And as they're making their way, you can be assured that they began to notice things. They're, they're walking along the road one day, and all of a sudden, one of the older men says, wait a minute, you see that pile of stones? I think that's what my grandfather told us about. That one night, while Jacob was sleeping in the desert with a rock as his pillow, he had a dream, and in the dream, there was a ladder going up between heaven and earth. And on that ladder, angels were ascending and descending. And at the top of the ladder was the God of our father Abraham and of his son Isaac. And he called the name of this place Bethel, the very house of God. We must be in Bethel. We're only about 10 miles now to go. And they keep walking along. And <coughs> another young man says, or, or another old man rather says, Wait a minute, I recognize that tree. I recognize the tree because it has that funny little U-shape at the bottom of the limb that I used to jump up as a kid and grab. Well, wait a minute. It seems like this tree is so much smaller than it used to be. I used to have to jump to grab the limb. Now it's down to my knees. We must be getting close. And finally, they come to a place where an elderly lady looks ahead and she says, you see that rise up there? When you get over that rise, you're going to be able to see the city set on a hill. You're going to be able to see the gold of the temple gleaming. And can you imagine their excitement, their thrill, their joy, all of their dreams coming to pass finally as they walked over the crest of that final hill and they looked down on Jerusalem, which was a ruin. Nothing was there. You see, when Babylon came in, they came in and didn't just take people captive. The Scripture tells us that they didn't leave one stone lying upon another. In fact, it goes one step farther. It said it took the stones of the temple and ground them into dust. And if that weren't enough, they took the dust and had their soldiers spread it across the entire empire so that no one could ever rebuild it. And that's what the children of Israel saw when they made their way back to the city set on the hill, to the place of God's presence and God's glory. Can you imagine their disappointment, the discouragement, the disillusionment? The youngers saying to the olders, where's this glorious city you told us about? I thought we were coming back to a place that God protected with His very presence. And when they looked at it and they knew that their job 
according to what God had told them, was to rebuild the city and rebuild the temple, they're looking at themselves saying, how can we few do anything when an entire nation took years to do this? Look at this place. It's a disaster. So God sent along some administrative leaders and some religious leaders to bring his word of encouragement to them. And they basically said, if I could synopsize it, it would be this. If God moved upon the heart of a pagan king to not only let us come home, but to actually pay for us to come home and to pay for the rebuilding, do you really think God's going to leave us here without this thing being accomplished? God's going to do what God has said he would do. And so the people began to work. But some time went by, and they began to face resistance from others, opposition. They began to face hurdles that they couldn't jump over. And soon, without having a meeting to decide it, they just all began to slowly quit work and go home. You see, they had learned that though this was a huge task that they didn't feel like they could accomplish, they had learned while in Babylon how to survive, just to get by. They learned how to keep house. And they said, let's go back to what we know. Let's go back to what we're familiar with. And so God sends along two prophets. One was younger and one was older. The younger kind of fiery prophet, Zechariah, says, it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord, that I'm going to accomplish this as you shall grace to the headstones. And Haggai comes along and says, I know for all of you this looks like nothing, but you need to know that the latter glory is going to exceed the former glory. No matter what our resources are right now, God is going to accomplish what he has promised us. We are going to have a place full of his glory. Now some of you have walked with God a long time now. You've done the Babylonian thing. You, uh, you feel like you've been living in a world in which you're outnumbered, you're outclassed, and you're outpowered. You, you're the minority in a world that believes bad is good and good is bad. And you feel like, how can we do anything when it's just us few? How can we make any difference in this world? And you find yourself learning to accommodate the world just to survive. You know in your heart of hearts it's not how it should be, but it seems like that's how it is and how it's always going to be. I mean, your marriage is barely surviving. And what's there is a bad caricature of what you thought it would be on your wedding day those many years ago. Your health is like the rubble the Jews saw when they came over the hill and saw Mount Zion for the first time again. You can't remember the last time your whole household has been healthy. You can't remember the last time. Everybody within your household just felt good. It's just a rubble. And your finances? Well, it's hard to call them finances because all you got, to quote the British, are halfpennies when you need thousands. And you've got nothing to show for it. You look at your bank account statement and you realize, I barely have enough money to actually buy gas to go to work. I don't have enough money left to hardly buy food. But every once in a while just like for these Jews, the wind of God's Spirit would blow. And it would be like water in the desert for you. You would feel a sense of hope. And you would get excited again. And then you'd wake up the next day back to the same old world. 
to the same old stuff that you have to face every day. And you're tempted to say the same thing those Jews did. Maybe this dream isn't from God after all. Maybe this will never change. It will always be like this. Haggai chapter 1, verse 2. This is what the Lord says. This people says, the time has not come. The time that the Lord's house should be built. Notice what they weren't saying. They weren't saying he wasn't God. They weren't saying what he said wasn't true. But in the face of constant defeat and failure, do you realize that can erode everything inside of you? All of your courage, all of your hope can just leach away into nothing, into a pit, because it seems like it's never going to get any better. And you're tempted to say the same thing these Jews said. Maybe it's just not God's timing yet. God says in verse 3, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? What's going on here at heart? They had hoped and they had dreamed, but the realization felt like a nightmare rather than a fulfillment. So what they did is they became embroiled in the ordinary and lost their sense of high purpose. I put it this way for you, and I'm sure somebody else could come up with better wording. I said, anytime you lose sight of a higher calling and a higher purpose for your life, you'll get caught up in the mundane things of this world. You'll start trying to do ordinary better instead of continuing to believe for extraordinary. As a church, you'll start trying to do church better. Let's get better systems in place. Let's make sure we got all of our ducks in a row. Everything goes smoothly. Let's make sure that our live stream works well. Let's make sure that all the video works good. Let's make sure the music is the best it can be and the lights work just perfectly. Let's make sure we got powder on the head so no one sees sweat. We, we want to make sure it's perfect. We begin to do church better instead of believing for the day when God's presence would come down in such power that we could not stand before him and no one cared what anybody looked like. I can remember days here in this house when people were strewn all over the place because of the power of his presence and no one cared a bit what your hair looked like. No one cared whether you were dressed to the nines. I don't even know what that means, but that's a saying. No one cared whether you were guy or girl, they just cared that God's presence was in the room and we could barely stand before Him. In fact, most times we couldn't. I can remember one time, I can remember so clearly, standing up when the pulpit used to be, how many remember when the pulpit used to be there? I can remember standing up there at the pulpit, putting my hands on the pulpit, having my sermon right there ready to go, and for some reason I could not open my mouth. I was struck in awe of God's presence. But the temptation is when you don't feel it is to go back to the ordinary. And let's do the ordinary better. You double down on your bet. I've got, I had a friend once that we met at Elam. He's a dear friend, and I'm not judging him. I'm just telling you what happened. He pulled in at a time when, you know, Kara and I, we were poorer than a church mouse. We had nothing. And we're walking from where we had parked our car into a service at Elam at the time. 
And this friend of ours, I mean, he was in school with us, same age as us, all that kind of stuff. This friend of ours drove in in a brand new minivan. Top of the line minivan. Everything you could imagine. And I thought, what are we doing wrong? And so he stopped beside us to talk to us, because again, he's a good friend. He stopped beside us to talk to us, and I said, man, you must be living right. And his response was, What's a little more debt? What does it matter? I don't own this thing. The bank owns it. It's just all payments. And I realized all he did was try to do this life better, to survive, instead of wait for the presence of God. You see, we begin to treat the presence of God like a long-lost memory. We try to get by doing the same old, same old. We're like Peter. Remember Peter? after Jesus had died, and there was that time period where he would appear. It was kind of like playing hide-and-seek with his disciples. You know, he'd pop up here and leave. Then he'd pop up there and he'd leave. But there came a time when Peter got tired of waiting, got tired of just wondering if God's ever going to do anything. So Peter says, I'm going fishing. And by going fishing, he didn't mean I'm going out to get some rest and relaxation like Bill Northcutt might. He meant, I'm going back to that which I'm familiar with that which I know how to do. I'm going back to do my business called fishing. See, in some ways, and please hear my heart, in some ways it's easy to build a church. If I told everybody, you don't have to tithe anymore. If I told everybody, church is going to be 15 minutes. And if I told everybody, that you can come dressed as you are and we're going to feed you a sumptuous banquet every single Sunday afternoon, I could pretty much guarantee you, you could build the church. I know how to build a church. The question isn't whether you know how to build the church. The question is, do you know how to build a place to house God's presence? Where the presence of God leans towards that place and can't wait to get there. Haggai says this in verse 5, now, now therefore, thus says the Lord, consider your ways. Five times in this book, God tells them to consider their ways. And I think it behooves us to give ear to that. As I was reading in my scripture reading <clears throat> this week, I was struck again by how so many times God says they have ears, but they don't hear. They have eyes, but they don't see. In Revelation, he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So God here says to us, consider your ways. Think about what you're doing. Stop what you're doing. Interrupt the dailiness of it all. Interrupt your status quo. Interrupt the mundane. Think about what you're doing. We need to be a little bit more like Peter, who when so many of the followers of Jesus left. I mean, he had had thousands following him and they all left. They ran away. And Jesus looks at the few that are remaining and says, are you two going to leave me? And Peter's response is, where else can we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And I hope that's the cry of your heart. That though you're facing things that might seem insurmountable to you, that in the face of the promises of God, it feels like all you're looking at is rubble. I hope there's something inside of you that says, Lord, I have nowhere else to go. You're it. 
I put all my eggs in one basket. I sold everything and I invested it in you. You are my treasure. And I have nowhere else I want to go. What else can we do? Church without his presence is just a pageant without power. Everyday life without his presence is just another form of death. Which is why Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 that before Christ we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Without his presence, you've got nothing. You have knowledge. But somehow that knowledge up here has to get to our heart, which is intended to be the temple of his presence. Paul tells us, don't you know you are the temple of the living God? You're the temple now. You're the place that's the house, his presence. And that's what the book of Haggai is about. Building a place for his presence. Am I suggesting that everything we have ever done has been wrong? Everything we have done individually or as a church? No, of course not. All I'm trying to do is to get us to heed God's warning, which is give careful thought to your ways. Is what you're doing producing what you want? Is what you're doing inviting, attracting the presence of God? Or are you just learning how to do mundane life better, to survive in this world? Verse 6, you have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but do not have enough. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put it into a bag with holes in it. Thus says the Lord of hosts, second time, consider your ways. They weren't even following the natural laws of agriculture. I mean, I don't know a whole lot about farming, but I do know this. You put in less than what you hope to get. You put in a seed of corn, hoping that you will get a stalk of corn with several ears on it, with several seeds on it. They were sowing much and getting less. And remember, these were the people of God. Today we would call them Christians. They loved God, but life was not going the way they had thought it would when they came to God. And just like for us, every once in a while, God will do something to bring us fresh hope, fresh encouragement. It's like a jolt to propel us forward. <clears throat> maybe it's a powerful worship service that just undoes us. Or maybe it's uh, a prophetic word that calls you up to something higher, reminds you of God's promise that His eye is upon you. Or maybe it's a powerful healing. God touches your body and all of a sudden you realize God really cares. He's here. Then you wake up the next day and you've got to face the same monsters, the same stuff that's out there. They had gotten used to hopelessness. They had adjusted and accommodated Babylonian-type living. They were used to expecting nothing happening in their services. Oh, you know, they probably prayed for healing just like we do, but they didn't expect anybody really to get healed. I can remember a friend of mine saying once, my anticipation is that when somebody comes in with a headache and I pray for a headache, they're going to die. Because he said, that's how bad it is. And that's kind of what these Jewish people were feeling. They had little hope that anything would change, little hope for fruitfulness or abundance. And God comes to them and says, stop and think about it. Realize what you're doing. 
It's possible to live so below the kingdom of God and the glory of God that we've ever stopped even believing it could be real. The <clears throat> founder of uh, Vineyard Ministries was a guy named John Wimber. John Wimber was a beach bum on the beaches of California. I mean, he was into it all. Anything you could imagine, he was into. But John Wimber had a dramatic salvation experience with God in a hotel room all alone, reading a Bible. But in reading his Bible, over several days, he came to the realization that somewhere in the Bible it says, I should get together with other people who believe in God. So he thought, I should go to church because they seem to believe in God. So he went to church service. This is no joke. He went to a church service. And he sat through the whole church service completely confused. He stood when they stood, when they sang. Some people lifted hands, some didn't lift their hands, some danced, some didn't dance. But he watched it all confused. He sat there while they did communion and they distributed the little pieces of bread and they distributed the little cup that was like a taste sample that you get at BJ's. They, he, they went through it all. And when it got all done, people just stood up, filed out the door, shaking the pastor's hand. So he waited to be last. And when he got to the pastor, he said, is that it, or is there more this afternoon? And the pastor said, well, what, what do you mean? He goes, is this all there is? Is this the whole service? And the pastor goes, yeah, that's it. And he says, what about the stuff in the Bible? What about tongues and prophecy and healings? What about miracles? And the pastor says, oh, we don't do that anymore. And John Wimber's response to the pastor was, you mean I gave up sex and drugs for this? You know what I can't wait for? Is the day when God can't wait to get to church. When God is so enthralled with the people that are so enthralled with Him that He comes with His presence and power. I wonder sometimes if when, and I know this is an anthropomorphism, but I wonder sometimes if God wakes up in the morning and says, what's the point of going to church? It's just going to be the same old, same old. What would be the point? I can't wait until God can't wait to come. Verse 9, You looked for much, but it came to little. When you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Says the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that is in ruins while everyone runs to his own house. Verse 11, I called for a drought on the land and the mountains on the grain and the new wine and the oil and whatever the ground brings forth on men and livestock on all the labor of your hands. I mean, this is a hard saying, but God is saying, do you wonder why stuff that you're doing isn't working? He says, I'm the one who's causing it to fail. So that you quit running after those things and run after me. So you quit looking for your life out there and look for your life in him. He dried up everything just so that they would get so frustrated, so that they would get so desperate that they couldn't live without God. God is the one who drives us to hunger for Him, to thirst for Him, to believe that this, which we have had today, isn't enough and not the way it was intended to be. God is the one who does that. You can't blame me. You can't blame Family Power Church. You can't blame your spouse. You can't blame anybody. It's God who dries it up so that you get so thirsty that you're not satisfied with anything but living water from Him so that you begin to look for the shade of His presence. 
But do you know what we most often do when it gets dried up? We rebuke it. We blame the devil for it. And one of the worst things you can do in life is live your life like I have so many times, rebuking something that I think is wrong, only to find out that I'm actually rebuking God. And that's what was happening for them. I think so many times, we're like Balaam. You remember the story of Balaam in uh, the Old Testament? Balaam was a foreign prophet, called to prophesy against Israel, but God wouldn't let him. But he gets on his donkey, and he starts riding. And the donkey does some weird things. Diverts him out, and he hits the donkey and gets him back on the path. The donkey takes him between some crevices of a rock and rubs his legs against him, and he gets mad. And he gets down, and he starts beating the donkey until finally an angel appears. And the angel tells him, don't you understand that this whole time I've had a sword drawn to kill you, but your donkey's been trying to save you. I suspect that at the end of that day, Balaam got off his donkey, went around to the front of his donkey, grabbed it by the face and gave it a huge kiss. Fed it grain and hay for the rest of its life, thanking it for saving it. Because I think some of the stuff that you're going through, God did it on purpose in order that you will seek him more than anything else. That you will find Him in whatever you're going through. You know, all the stuff that you're going through, all the problems that we think are so big, whether it be our finances or health, all of it, I'm not saying it's not real, I'm not saying it's not important, but can you find God in it? What is God doing in the midst of your stuff? We're like the disciples. We're saying to Jesus, don't you care? Stop this wind. And yet He's sleeping in the boat. The wind was never the problem. The storm's not the problem. Not if you've got Jesus. And that's what Haggai is trying to show these people. Often God will cause things that we have done or tried to do in our own strength, our own energy, our own wisdom. God will cause them to fail so that we will run after Him instead of that stuff. When you come to the end of yourself, you come to the end of yourself and you realize, I need something more than this. This isn't enough for me. Personally, I am unwilling for this house, Family Life Church, for this building to just be a building that we do services every Sunday. We come at 10.30, we leave by noon because no one wants you to go later. Uh, we, in order to have a business meeting where actually people come because they're members and they feel some commitment, we have to feed them lunch now. I don't want to do that. I'm not unwilling to feed you lunch. That's not my issue. I don't care about that. I really don't. If you want pizza, have pizza. My issue is, I don't want to do that and think we have had church. We've had church when God's come, when God's presence has been here, when we have become so aware of Him that nothing else matters. You stop worrying about and complaining about everybody around you and what they're wearing and how their hair is today and how their kid's too loud. You stop worrying about all that stuff. You just don't care anymore because God's here. That's what I am looking for. I want God or honestly, I don't want to just keep doing the status quo. Get by. God's not willing for me to be preoccupied with paneled houses or for my focus to be on the runes either. Do you know what the runes are, by the way? The runes are all of those things that we thought should be, but they aren't. You know, all those dreams that we had, all the expectations that we had. That's why today's message is called Shift Your Expectations. They had expectations of what they would find when they got home to Jerusalem. Well, we have expectations of what we thought would happen. And God shifts our expectations by the things of life. 
God says, put down your hammers. And your hammers are all your efforts to fix the stuff in your life. God says, put down your hammers and go up to the mountain and get timber to build my house. Go up to the mountain, the place where his presence dwells. Go to the place of intimacy, of prayer, of just being in his presence. Go to that place. And from that place, you will build his house. We have uh, a scripture in the Psalms that says God inhabits the praises of his people. The Japanese Bible puts it this way. If you build a chair that's big enough for God, he will come and sit in it. That's what I want. Don't you? Don't you want more of God's presence here? More than what we've had by far? I don't want to just remember back to 1994, 95, 96 when God did wonderful things. I want God to do it again. God, I've heard of your fame. Renew them in our day. Renew them in our day. I don't want to tell the young people anymore about revival. I don't want to tell them about what I experienced. I want them to experience it. I want them to experience it more than I did, and I don't want to be left out on the next move. I want to be like my father-in-law. My father-in-law in in 1994, when God began to move in such a powerful way, God was touching people right and left. And my father-in-law was one of those people, you know, the staid, proper British gentleman. You you remember him. My father-in-law would stand there while he'd get prayer, and everybody else would be falling down and he would be standing. And I can remember him saying, maybe God is passing me by on this move. I'm old. I've already had his touch many, many times. I've experienced his presence. Maybe God is passing me by. And I can still remember the day. He still, even though he wasn't feeling the touch of God like many others were, he was helping. He was serving. Even in his 80s, he was serving. And I can remember at one point, this guy, his name was Ray Sell, was praying for people, and God was touching people powerfully. In fact, Ray came here for a while, too. God was using him powerfully. He was touching people. And my father-in-law was actually catching people as God would touch them to keep them from just collapsing on the floor, to lay them down gently so they wouldn't get hurt. And in one moment of time, he's catching somebody, he's laying on the floor. Ray turns to him and just says, God, give him more. And my father-in-law collapsed in a puddle. I don't think God's going to leave anybody out if your heart is towards him. And I think that's the story of Haggai. God says, I'm bringing you back. What you're looking at doesn't look at all like it's going to look. But will you long for that instead of running after your paneled houses? Will you long for what I have promised rather than looking at what is not yet? We live in that twilight zone of not yet but no longer. We're no longer the way we used to be. God has come and He's touched us, but we're not yet all that God's going to do in us. Does it feel like stuff in your life is dry? Not what you expected? Maybe it is in your marriage. I mentioned that earlier. Maybe it's in your finances. Maybe it's in your health. Maybe it's in your workplace. I don't know. But does it feel like stuff is dried up for you? that maybe this is not how it's supposed to be. And my, my statement to you is, when you're in that place, what should you pray? I think you should pray hotter still, God, until you get so dry you can't live without His living water.
God, more, more of whatever you're doing until I want only you. Zechariah says, it's not by might, it's not by power. It's by my spirit. It's not enough to open the word and to read the word and to preach the word. The word without the spirit becomes the law and death. We need the spirit of the living God. The question God asked Ezekiel was, can these bones live? As you look at your life, does your life look like a valley of dry bones? And God says to you, can these bones live? And if you're smart like Ezekiel, you'll say, oh God, you know. You know. And God says, I want you to prophesy to those dry bones and watch them come together and then watch sinew and skin come upon them and then breathe upon them the breath of life. My final statement to you today is, when you get into the position where you've got nothing left but God, you get God. Let me say it again, because I love this. I wrote this, but I still love it. <laughs> when you get into the position where you've got nothing left but God, you get God. Is God enough for you? Is that enough? You get God. I, I'm not promising you'll get healed. You get God. You might die, but you get God. I thought again and again, my mother-in-law is 96 years old. She's confused. I was with Marion this week, uh, sharing communion with her and Kate and those present. And Marion said to me similar things to what I thought from my mother-in-law. She said, you know what I want? And I said, what? She goes, I want to pray at night close my eyes, go to sleep, and wake up over there. I thought, what a way to go. What a way to go. Last thing on my mind was him, and the first thing on my mind is him. Do you know what faith is? Faith is the reduction of life until there's nothing left but God. That's my definition. I'm sure somebody can come up with something. Oh yeah, the writer of Hebrews already did. But this is my, my definition. Faith is when you've got nothing left but God, but you grab hold of God. When God calls for a drought, you're in a time pregnant with potential. And I believe God wants to turn our mourning into dancing. He wants to turn our runes into redemption. But are you willing to stop paneling your houses, running after the stuff that you think is going to make you happy? those new cars, the new toys that you have to have, all that stuff that you think is going to finally bring you satisfaction. Are you willing to set all of that aside in order to say, God, I want you more than anything else? And if that's your cry, then God's word says, go to the mountain and bring back timber to build a place for God's presence and God's glory. That's what Haggai is about. Would you stand with me?